Hello everyone and welcome to this online conversation at eCypher. My name is Eric van der Merrel. I'm a senior economist at eCypher and I'm holding today's discussion. I am very pleased to welcome Mathieu Parenti, who is a colleague of mine at the Université Libre de Bruxelles at the Solvay Business School in Brussels, where Mathieu is a professor of economics. Mathieu's field of research is in international trade and trade policy, as well as industrial organization, but more importantly, also in today's topic of discussion, namely international corporate taxation. Yes, Mathieu is specialized in global corporate tax and has written extensively on tax havens and also did some writing on the deal on corporate tax reform. Now, aside of being economics professor, Mathieu is also a research fellow at ECRS and the CEPR. Mathieu obtained his PhD from the Paris School of Economics and is also an associate editor at the Economic Journal. As I said, he has extensive written on today's topic and he has also followed closely the current debate from a more policy perspective on the update of international tax rules for multinationals. So hello Mathieu, welcome to today's podcast and I'm very glad to have you here with me today. Hello, Eric. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you here because I think you are um, one of the few trade economists who have written on this topic. And so we would be very curious to hear your thoughts on uh, what's basically going on. So, yeah, as I said, you have written like on this topic uh, from an academic perspective, um, but also more from a policy perspective. And I think you have written one policy insight for, for example, the French Council of Economic Analysis a couple of years ago. If I go through all your work, I mean, you have written about this from the perspective of multinationals. You also have written about tax havens as well as transfer pricing. Now, and all these concepts and topics are related with each other, but I just wanted to sort of recap with you a little bit what all these terms mean and why are they so much related and connected with each other. And following up on that, I'm also curious to hear your view of why are these issues all of a sudden important now and not, for example, 10, 20 years ago? What's basically going on with all these things? So I think to understand what is going on, it's important uh, to have in mind you know, how the international corporate tax system works or how it was supposed to work uh, until now. And so I would say there are two big principles. The first one is each country has a sovereign right over its corporate tax rate, what it includes or not in the tax base. But the bottom line is that each country should be able to tax firms' profit in its jurisdiction as it wants to. The second principle is that profits should be taxed where they are generated, which in passing means they should be taxed once, not twice, not multiple times. The problem is when you apply this second principle to multinationals, you know, where profits is generated is actually everywhere. So if all countries start taxing these profits, you end up very quickly with multinational firms' profits being taxed multiple times. So there's a bit of a tension between uh, those two profits. You want countries to tax as they want to, you want multinationals' profits to be taxed only once where profits are created. But there's even you know, a deeper problem with this, is that the reason of being of a multinational is precisely that a multinational is not just a collection of independent firms making profits in different countries in which it operates. The profits of a multinational actually result from a combination of its, actu of its activities all around the globe. And it's the combination of all these activities that generates its profits. 
So mm -hmm. when we want to tax the profits of a multinational where they are created, then, you know, we, we have a problem because those profits are actually not in uh, different places. They're everywhere. And we have to find a way to split these profits across jurisdictions. So this is what the current system does. It works on what's called a territorial basis. And it tries to split or to allocate the overall profits of multinationals across different jurisdictions. And the guiding principle to do this split is to do as if a multinational firm is a collection of independent entities. So basically, if you have a firm, let's call it Pineapple, okay, which designs iPhones in Ireland, and produces these iPhones in China, then what the international tax system does is say, well, Ireland is going to tax Pineapple Ireland and China is going to tax Pineapple China as if those two companies were completely unrelated. There are three problems with this principle. The first one, as I said before, is that the reason of being of multinational is precisely that there is something more to being one big firm than being a collection of separate entities. Huh? So it's not very economically sound. And also, there's a problem of, of course, international equity when you do this, huh? because you don't really ask the question of how a fair allocation of profits would look like. So in practice, how does it work? How can I allocate the profits of, say, this pineapple company between Ireland and China? Well, in practice, what we do is that we look for another comparable company that produces phones in China and for which I have a good understanding of its net profits. If I find such a comparable company, which only activities to produce phones in uh, China, and that this company says makes 40, then I will say that Pineapple China also makes 40. And if the profits overall of this company is 100, then I will say that Pineapple Island, the residual basically, makes 60. And so in the end, I will say, well, China gets to tax 40 at the rate it wants, and Ireland gets to tax 60 at the rate it wants. So this is called the transactional net margin method, which is one of the ways to split the profits. Another way, which is going to bring us to the question of transfer prices, mm -hmm. is to look instead at the price of transactions between Pineapple Island and Pineapple China. To organize production in China, you do need some input from Pineapple Island. And if you're the Pineapple company and you know that profits are less taxed in Ireland, what you would ideally want to do is to say that this input is very, very, very expensive. It's so expensive that it costs your production in China exactly all of its profits so that the net profits in China are zero and all the profits are actually in Ireland. So when a multinational firm decides on the price of a transaction with one of its affiliates, in effect, what it's doing is that it's splitting the profit across jurisdiction. And if you're free to choose the price you want to split these profits, then you can artificially declare all the profits in the jurisdiction with 
the lowest tax rate. And this is why transfer pricing guidelines exist. What do they say? They say, well, you cannot choose any price you want for this input. You should charge a price, which would be the price that Pineapple Island would charge to an independent buyer in China. Again, there is this idea that we consider multinational as being a collection of independent entities, and that should be the relevant benchmark. So what is the problem with this? Why is it not working? Well, precisely because it's very hard to find a comparable entity. We're talking about you know, large multinationals, which are very profitable. And usually the reason why they're so profitable is that they're very different from their competitors. The question about uh, digitalization adds another problem to this already uh, complicated issue. Yeah, so excuse me. Yeah, so can I, can I come in here? Yeah, so just to summarize, so on the one hand, I mean, I do feel that there is a sort of a tension between, on the one hand, you know, the size of a firm. So, you know, you have big multinationals and, you know, they can be good for the economy, but somehow there's somehow a sort of an area of tension with, with how business models have evolved over time. And so that has to do with digitalization, or is that just because they're big, or how do you see that? And what is the role of digitalization in this story, as you explained? So I think there are two different issues. The first one has more to do, I would say, with the importance of intangibles and the rise of the importance of intangibles over time that makes it harder and harder uh, to find a comparable entity uh, for which we know, say, the price, price of its transactions or its profits. So in practice, what will happen is that we will find comparable entities for certain branches of a multinational activity, for instance, the retailing part, for instance, the production part. Once we've allocated the profits that those entities should be making, we will say that all the residual profit goes to the place where the design has been made. And so this way, you end up allocating an excessive amount of profits to intellectual property. And why do we do this? Precisely because finding another entity with a comparable intellectual property would be extremely hard to do, almost impossible. Yeah. So this has to do with the rise of intangibles, the importance of intangibles. Digitalization adds another problem uh, to the issue, which is that in the digital world, you can actually be present in the market. You can you know, create some value, become more profitable because you're in this market without actually being present without having a permanent establishment and therefore without having a fiscal presence. Yeah. So you can avoid this territorial dimension on which taxes are based. Indeed. The problem yeah. for those digital giants is that only they can avoid being present in certain markets, but they actually use an essential input for their profits in this market which are user data. According to the guiding principle of international taxation, normally you should tax profits where they are created, where they are generated. Well, they're also generated in these markets where those firms are not fiscally present. And so this is why one stake of the current reform is to make this notion of permanent establishment evolve towards digital or virtual presence. So 
Just to summarize, so because of the intangible nature of the economy and how multinationals operate, they can basically decide where do they let their activities tax. And so they search for the lowest sort of denominator or the lowest tax level, basically. And that's how they sort of shift artificial activities across the globe. And so they try to find the lowest tax base. That, that, that's basically in a nutshell what's going on. That's right, of course. Uh, what we should keep in mind, and you know, thinking of tax, avoidan tax avoidance and corporate taxation sometimes kind of forget very easily, is that taxation is only one of the many factors uh, that enters the uh, decision for multinational to locate its activity in a place uh, versus another. So yeah. corporate taxation is one, but the quality, say, of the labor force, the access to capital, etc., all these are very important uh, factors as well. So, but then um, two questions in addition, because the debate often, or when we read all these articles on international taxes at the moment, we tend to think that because there is digitalization involved that makes that collection a lot harder, that it is only about digital firms or firms that sell online services. And I can imagine a lot of people are a bit confused about this. But does that mean, for example, that other non-digital multinational firms are also making use of this and also are affected by these new rules uh, or are part of the problem for why we are discussing these international tax rules now? Or is it only a digital company or digital service thing? So I think it's indeed very important here to understand that there is a profit-shifting problem, a tax avoidance problem, and there is a digitalization problem. And the two are related, but are, I think very different. First, the focus on digital firms has to do with uh, the perception that those firms do not pay taxes in places where they make profits. And that has to do with the fact that they don't have a permanent establishment, uh, that they don't have a fiscal presence uh, in these countries. And so for many countries, there's this feeling of unfairness is legit uh, to some extent uh, that has arisen but one thing which is very important to have in mind is that even in the world where there would be no profit shifting this problem would arise uh, which i think is uh, is important to have in mind the rise of intangibles has enabled firms to completely decorrelate the location of their uh, profits stemming from production and the place where those profits are declared. So for instance, if you locate your intellectual property in a tax haven, then in other places where you're going to sell your product, uh, you can actually say that this product is being sold thanks to the intellectual property that you've imported from a tax haven at a very high price. And yeah. so this way you can shift your profits very easily to tax havens. And so it's really beyond the nature of the goods and the, tran the international transactions and going more towards services, going more towards intangibles that has reinforced profit shifting. Yeah, so that's a separate sort of stream that is going on aside digitalization. So it's just the intangible nature of the economy. Lots of multinational firms are becoming more and more intangible. And that happens across the board. That happens in sort of multinationals that are active in manufacturing sectors as well. I mean, you pointed out to Apple, for example. 
So absolutely, this is something which is transversal to, to the economy and has more to do with whether you use intangibles or other services as input than digitalization per se. So you can be a firm in a manufacturing sector with a certain trademark and you can use this trademark to shift your profits. This, yeah. uh, this is one possibility. Digitalization, in fact, raises other issues. There's first, there's a conceptual one, which is that when your business model relies on gathering data from your users, okay, those users, which we would tend to think as consumers, also become, to some extent, producers because they provide you with some input that are going to generate profits. And so even though in the international tax system, uh, you would want to tax you know, production and you would not give taxing rights to the demand, well, the demand in the digital sector very directly participates to production. So there yeah. we have a problem. And so we have firms that generate profits in jurisdictions where they have no economic, no fiscal presence, although they generate profits thanks to the data gathered from their yeah. users. And so, so I think yeah. the, what is at stake also with, with the reform and something that has you know, gone wrong with the current tax system is that those countries where the users are were also missing some taxing rights. And what does that mean? So that means that they don't have an affiliate, these big multinationals or digital services companies in the territory of where the tax should be imposed? Or what does that mean? Uh, that means, in effect, that you can be present and, for instance, so you can be an online platform open to users on a different market. Mm -hmm. You're going to gather uh, this data which in turn you're going to use to sell advertising slots to firms. And so all your profits uh, will be uh, declared outside this country where the users are. And so this is where you know, the perception that current taxation system is unfair arose. Okay. So that's clear. So there are two... Yeah, as I said, two streams going on. So there is the intangible nature of the economy affecting all firms. And then on top of that, you have this digitalization layer of some companies are, you know, online platforms or online services that they provide with the help of data. And they don't have this affiliate in a country that normally otherwise forms a base for taxing, uh, taxing these activities. Okay, so what I also would like to talk about, as you said, is that global tax deal that seemed to be, you know, accorded two, two or three weeks ago, that was reported by the Financial Times, that there was a groundbreaking global deal on corporate tax reform that aims to eliminate all these tax havens. Now, these talks are hosted by the OECD, and yeah, there, there now seems to be, you know, a deal reached. The only sort of problem or potential problem is that the U.S. needs to get this past Congress, right? This needs to be implemented. Now, Janet Yellen, who was part of the uh, discussion, uh, of course, being the U.S. Uh, Treasury uh, Secretary, said that this is a once-in-a-generation accomplishment for economic diplomacy. And so it sort of states or it sort of implicitly says that the stakes are pretty high, also for the, or notably for the U.S., what do you think? Do you think um, it will get through? Do you think it's likely that Congress is going to pass this? Or what's your take on this? 
So first, when we talk about the OECD reform, it's important to have in mind that there are two pillars. Pillar one, which is about redistributing taxing rights across uh, countries and giving some taxing rights to consumption markets, to so final consumption markets. This pillar one clearly will not increase tax revenue for the U.S. This is a pillar which, at best, will be neutral for the U.S., but very likely will um, lead to some losses. So then there is the question of why the U.S., you know, back in April already, actually supported this pillar one. It's because the U.S. is actually demanding that all countries who actually sign this agreement commit to removing their digital services tax. Yes. The U.S. will say, we agree to a fairer redistribution of tax revenues, but in exchange, we want those consumption markets to remove their DS. So that's the first pillar. And whether this will actually go through, you know, that's going to be challenging. Okay, so that's clear about the first pillar. Now about the second pillar. What's in it for the U.S. there? So the second pillar consists in a global minimum corporate tax rate. Okay, so the principle is as follows. If tomorrow the corporate minimum corporate tax rate is 15%, that an American firm has an effective tax rate which is below this 15%, then the U.S. would have to write to collect this tax deficit. So what's in it for the U.S. here? Well, potentially a lot of tax revenues. However, to understand the chances that this will have to go through in the U.S., it's interesting to look at the evolution of the U.S. position over the last months. Last April, the Biden administration supported a minimum effective tax rate of 21%. When the Biden administration came out with this proposal, it was you know, a bit of a, of a shock, yeah, because until then, all the talks had been rather around 12 or 12.5% at the, at yeah. the OECD. So 21% yeah. was, was really a shock. Then from there, the 21% became at least 15%. And re very recently, the at least 15% became 15%. And this was presented as concessions for countries like Ireland uh, to actually joining the agreement, but clearly there is also in there a way for the U.S. to make it more acceptable for it to go through. Yeah. So, and that makes it more likely then that this will be accepted by the U.S., this reform package, this second pillar? Is that something really that the U.S. is now willing to ratify or Congress? Is it more likely? It's still going to be hard for this to go through, but having a rate of, you know, 15% and not at least 15% or 21% clearly will make it easier. Okay. Now, imagine a scenario where this is going to be rejected by the U.S. Congress. So imagine that this deal, I mean, although even, you know, Janet Yellen said it was very important, once in a generation accomplishment, imagine that this is not going to happen. Do we then still need to wait like 10 to 20 years before a new deal will come up? And I mean, if that's going to be the case, what about tax haven? Will they then just, you know, continue to exist as if nothing has happened? Or what I can also imagine has the sort of current mood shifted towards that these tax havens are going away anyways? Or what's your take on this? How do we need to see that? 
So if it doesn't go through, then we'll be on, you know, the other, and there's a large number of them, uh, countries uh, which signed the agreement. For instance, it will be very interesting to see what the European position is on this. And so the EU directive should be proposed very soon for the implementation of Pillar 2 will be already very interesting in this, uh, in this respect. What does that mean for tax havens? I mean, will they just uh, continue to exist as if nothing happens? At the same time, and there's a lot of talk about uh, these tax havens, that they, you know, that they are fair, we are missing a lot of money. And so even if it's going to be extremely difficult for the US to get this through, and imagine a scenario where this won't happen. I mean, has the current mood shifted towards that these tax havens are going away anyways? Or how do you see that, that the future of tax havens, basically? So I think it's important to have in mind that minimum taxation is possible even without an agreement. A good example of this is the US. The US already has a sort of minimum tax already. It's actually the um, already has a minimum tax rate today, and it's actually how the compatibility of this minimum tax rate with Pillar 2 uh, that uh, makes it also complicated. But so minimum taxation is possible uh, for, for countries. They do not need to wait for an agreement for this. Of course, if you believe that increasing the effective tax rate of your firms which make, will make them less competitive, it's in your interest to have other countries also increase the uh, minimum tax rate. So yeah. what it means is that if other countries are committed to implemented a minimum tax rate and coordinate, uh, they, it's not because the US is out uh, that uh, they would not have still important reasons to do so. Now, this is true for Pillar 2. So for Pillar 2, I would say a substitute could be found, uh, or maybe even a Pillar mm -hmm. 2 without the US, so that could still be a possibility. However, finding a substitute to Pillar 1, that would be close to impossible. Okay, so and why? why Pillar is that? 1, on the contrary, uh, requires really, because it redistributes taxing rights, it requires much more coordination and cooperation of tax authorities. And the reason why Pillar 1 was accepted by many countries is precisely because they were expecting to be able to raise tax revenue uh, from, from the American digital giants, uh, which have a presence yeah. in their market. Yeah. So once the US is out, if Pillar 1 doesn't go through, I hardly see a country like France not implementing again a digital service tax, uh, etc. Yeah, so th that's my next topic, basically, the digital services tax, because that's always running through in these kind of discussions. So you explain very well the differences between Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, you know, about the redistribution of these taxes and then the minimum tax rate. That's true. But yeah, so th there is this digital services tax, and that basically comes down to taxing these digital services by these big online platform multinationals. Now, the U.S. was always fiercely opposed to this tax because it believes it is discriminatory, it is burdensome for U.S. firms, and it also always says in these declarations that it is unfair with international tax practices. Now, what is your view on the DST, like the digital services tax, the DST? Is the DST that is imposed by France, Italy, and yeah, again, like India and Turkey, is that justified? I mean, what is your take on this? Is it justified? I mean, in an ideal world, these clearly do not exist. 
So economically, uh, you do not want digital service tax, which basically apply to one sector. Uh, this is discriminatory. Second, it does not even recognize that digitalization is completely transversal to the economy. Okay, uh, digitalization is important, you know, also in the pharmaceutical sector. It's important even in the textile sector. And so you know, applying a DST on a subgroups of firms is discriminatory. And it's true that, you know, exposed in the end, these subgroup of firms turn out to be American. Yeah. Now, another, I think, two important issues with the DST that are relevant with the corporate tax reform. One has to do with incidents. Okay, we know that the DSTs are taxed that are going to be passed on directly to consumers. So, the, yeah. so if indeed what is at stake is to make those digital di giants pay, pay their fair share of taxes, well, DSTs are not a way to go because the burden of a taxation are going to be immediately passed on to consumers. And by the way, we already yeah, have evidence okay. of this. Huh? There were announcements of Google, there were announcements of Amazon, to charge higher price uh, for their uh, advertising slots if um, the DSTs were to be implemented. With the corporate income tax rate, when you tax profits, at least there, uh, you have the expectation that the incidence, uh, so who will in the end pay this tax, is going to be split uh, with also, say, shareholders, workers, uh, and consumers. But at least uh, the firm uh, would also be involved in paying the tax burden. A second dimension which is important for the uh, DSTs is that, by definition, these are unilateral. That mm -hmm. creates a lot of uncertainty for firms uh, which need some stability and some uh, need to be able to be forward-looking for a couple of years before they start uh, making an investment. And so clearly, yeah. uh, DSTs are not creating a stable economic environment uh, for these firms. Okay, so that's one thing. But somehow, I mean, this is running through. I mean, so what I understand from you is that this is somehow used as a negotiation chip or just to, as, a, as an instrument to nonetheless have these fair taxes in place so that consumers are compensated. Whether this is a bargaining chip or not, this is... You know, this is an interesting question. The, the position of the EU in that respect has been uh, quite, in, quite interesting. Why? Because there was the EU digital levy, I think, uh, was supposed uh, to be announced last July. Yeah? And the idea was uh, to have a very low rate, uh, but a very large base. Then following the position of the US and especially the Biden administration, the EU for a while postponed the EU digital tax. But mm. now, according to more recent developments, it seems that the EU digital tax is not completely dead and that somehow it could be compatible with the but, text uh, that was uh, signed uh, 10 days ago. Yeah, with the deal. Yeah. So the two from the EU side, somehow the two are still compatible. So there is a deal. But at the same time, what I understand is the EU doesn't want to get rid of it completely with the DST. Is that is that what it is? Or? This is also my understanding, which I found to be quite surprising because the US was quite committed on this. One maybe element of answer, I think, was given by Gentiloni a couple of months back, uh, is that this EU digital levy will fall first actually on European firms and not so much on American firms, which mm -hmm. I guess this means that 
where contrary to say the minimum tax rate, we target you know the largest firms, uh, and same thing for pillar one, the EU digital tax uh, would actually apply even to uh, medium and small enterprises. So maybe this is a way for the EU to actually convince the Americans that the digital tax is not discriminatory towards the US. I'm only speculating here. Again, we're missing a lot mm -hmm. of details, but it's true that the deal that we had access to leaves the door open for EU digital levy. Yeah, so because if that's true, if that's true, that it's uh, in effect, I mean, contrary to maybe what the US says, I mean, the US says that these DSTs are discriminatory for their firms. If that's true, that it um, also covers a wider set of companies that are European and somehow smaller than these big US uh, multinationals, it wouldn't help these countries to increase their competitiveness, I would say. I mean, we know that things can be distortive. Maybe there is a need for tax collection somehow. But I mean, it might be the case that it's not very sort of stimulating their own digital economies. And that's only because I'm saying we did a sort of a recent policy brief and did some sort of you know research in this area that shows that the countries that, at least for the European countries, that did impose this DST, they had a longer trend of yeah weakening uh, of a weakening of the digital services sector how how do you look upon this how do you what, what's your take on this i think the rationale for imposing a dst is clearly not one you know to stimulate an industry it's rather one for raising tax revenue in the simplest and easiest and fastest way now, a problem I see also with the DSTs and the possibility for all countries to implement them unilaterally is that if you think of, say, an American firm deciding to invest in a small country, there's a question of whether an American firm, say, will actually pay the cost of complying with the tax system of this new jurisdiction and end up investing there or not. The yeah. DST can have indeed very negative effects, even in the short run, they look like an easy way to raise tax revenue. Yeah, so they can be economically distortive, so to say, for production or trade. There is a big but, I feel. I mean, another, another way of asking, like, is this really going to solve the issue then? I mean, about fair taxing, or is this really going to help um, solving the issue of unfair tax practices where we are discussing, you know, over the last couple of months, I mean, are these digital services taxes really, yeah, as I said, the silver bullet to, to get this story right in terms of international taxation? The question is whether Pillar 1 will be implemented effectively before December 2023. If it is, and if the numbers that are projected today are materialized, normally, Indeed, countries would have no incentive to implement DSTs. For countries like France, we did the exercise. Pillar 1 would bring between, say, 500 and 700 millions okay, each year. This is more huh, than what the, current, the DST implemented uh, in 2019 uh, brought in terms of tax revenue. Yeah. And furthermore, yeah. and that's important, Pillar 1, contrary to a DST, will not only fall on consumers, but also on firms, huh? which was a bit uh, yeah. the idea uh, to make those firms pay their fair, fair share. 
Okay, so in all, I mean, yeah, it's it's much much of the attention is centered on on pillar one that needs to go through, and then yeah, hopefully uh, that will solve uh, some of the important issues that we're discussing uh, today. I see that we are running out of time. I think we had a lot of uh, material to think. Uh, <laughs> on. Uh, this was a very interesting discussion. I thank you very much, Mathieu, and I thank everybody for listening in. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.